0: Please turn with me to our passage from God's Word this morning. It's found in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin."
1: And now, Lord, I ask for your
0: help to guard me
1: from pride and falsehood and distortion and imbalance and lovelessness, and I pray for the fullness of your Holy Spirit so that I speak the truth and speak it in love and build up the body of Christ and have enough prophetic anointing that unbelievers would be granted eyes to see and ears to hear and fall, as it were, on their faces and say, God is in this place and is real. I pray, Lord, that you would heal the sick in this room right now. I pray that you'd strengthen the weak and Build up and encourage the downcast, that you'd reconcile those who are alienated from each other where hostilities may be present in a marriage or between parent and child or friends. I pray for purification where there's been deep defilement this week, that you would come and move people beyond bondage to sin. And then there are 10,000 needs I know nothing of. And you know them all. In your miraculous way, like you took five loaves and two fish and multiplied them for 5,000, take my little effort to speak your word and multiply it for a 1,000 needs I could never dream are in this room. So that you get the honor and these folks get the help. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Since this is Communion Sunday, it seemed good to me that I would pause over verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6 of Romans and talk about baptism as it relates to what's going on in this chapter. And the reason those are connected, of course, as you know, is because in the Bible, or in the ministry of Jesus, there are two ordinances that he's given to the church. One is baptism, which is the emblem of dying and rising with Christ, and the other is the Lord's Supper, which is the emblem of the death of Christ. And what struck me as I I thought about this is that the two ordinances that are given to the church are death ordinances. They're both about death mainly. I don't want to minimize the resurrection of Jesus. It's Tremendously important, but mainly that's about death, and mainly baptism is about death. Which is why it comes up here in the context. So it seemed good to me that on this morning where we celebrate one ordinance, I would also linger over the other ordinance. And we would ask what Paul is teaching us here about this. So let's see why he brings it up. Verse 1 second part of the verse, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And his answer, as you know, is no, may it never be. And then he explains, how, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Dead men don't sin, that's the answer. Then that triggers in his mind baptism. So he says, verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So my question is, what do we learn from baptism in this text? And there are three answers to that question if there's time for these. Number one. The first thing we learn is that baptism is universally practiced in the early church, and Paul thought that it should be. How do we know that? Well, the situation here is that Paul's writing to Rome, and he's never been there. Now put yourself in his shoes as he writes to a group of believers in Rome where he's never been. Thousands of miles separate him. He's not been there to teach them what he thinks about whether they should be baptized and what baptism means and all that. And he simply assumes every believer is baptized. That's an amazing statement about the universality of the practice of baptism in the early church. He doesn't even contemplate the possibility that there might be a category of Christians who are not baptized and a category of Christians who are baptized. He simply assumes they are. We see this in two ways in verse uh, three. The question is, shall we go on living in sin that grace might increase? And he says, no, the meaning of your baptism contradicts that. That would contradict the meaning of your baptism. He doesn't say, and those of you who are baptized should really understand this. He says, just run right across the board, no exceptions to everybody he's writing to. This would be contrary to your baptism. In fact, he says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ, as all Christians, have been baptized into his death. And here's the second thing you see in verse 3. The phrase, do you not know? What does that mean? Surely you know. Why does he say that? Because this is basic. This is fundamental. This is the beginning, not the end. This is not graduate school. This is first grade. Don't you know the meaning of your baptism, he says. Don't you know what it means, namely death to sin? So for those two reasons, he assumes that all Christians have experienced it. He doesn't create any category of unbaptized believers. And he says to them, and you know this, don't you? You know what your baptism means, don't you? Which, Which is an amazing thing that he could write to people thousands of miles away that he's never been there. He doesn't know who's been there probably over all those years since the church was planted, whenever it was planted. And he just assumes, you're Christians, you know the meaning of baptism. So there's a loud, clear teaching coming through here that baptism was universally practiced. And the understanding of it was the first thing you found out in your Christian life. And then you built on it, Romans 6. Which is why he's building on it, Romans 6. The life of Romans 6 is built on the meaning of baptism. And that's the way he constructs this chapter. So that's the first answer to the question, what do we learn about baptism here? Second, baptism is by immersion in water, not sprinkling or pouring. Now, I say that simply first on the basis of the meaning of the word baptizo, to baptize. It never had the meaning in Greek of pouring or sprinkling. It always meant immerse, plunge, sink, drown. That's what it meant. And so when they chose that word to describe what was happening, they meant immerse. Now, it doesn't have that meaning for a lot of people today. Baptized for a lot of people today is sprinkle or pour. It it never had that meaning in Greek before the New Testament. And as it's used in the New Testament, it means immerse. Now, there's some other reasons why you can see this. A second one would be, besides the meaning of the word itself, none of the instances of baptism in the New Testament suggest anything like sprinkling or pouring, and some of them can only be understood in terms of immersion. For example, John 3.23. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem because there was much water there. So John the Baptist is baptizing. Why? Because there's much water there. Well, you don't need much water to sprinkle. And you don't need much water to pour. All you need is a bowl. But there there were rivers there. There were springs there. So that you could go down into the water and immerse. Or another text would be Acts 8.38. This is an amazing story. Remember Philip? He was told to go down, join himself to the chariot. He hears the man reading Isaiah. uh, The Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. And he says, who is this talking about? The author or somebody else? And Philip... It says, preach to him Jesus. That's all it says about Philip. And what comes out of the man's mouth next is, can I be baptized? Nothing was said about Philip saying anything about baptism. This is an Ethiopian who knows nothing about Christianity. Zero. And the first thing out of his mouth is, can I be baptized? So what must Philip had been talking about, at least in part? Well, the fulfillment of the messianic promises in Jesus to bear the sins of the world. I want that. How can I get that? And he must have said something about repenting and believing and being baptized. He says, well, can I do that? And then verse 38 says, he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, I'm sure he had a jug of water along. They did not need to go down into the water to sprinkle or to pour. They went down into the water, as almost all scholars agree, because in the New Testament, we're not talking about post-New Testament changes, but in the New Testament, people were immersed. That's the way baptism was performed. That's what it meant. And a fourth argument, besides those three, the meaning of the word, the fact that there was lots of water, it had to be, the fact that they went down into the water, is this imagery of chapter 6 verses 3 and 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. There's a burial and there's a rising up from the dead. Now I believe that in the mercy of God he will grant indulgence to the millions of Christians who don't see it this way and who practice sprinkling rather than immersion. If their heart is right and they are good in conscience and honest with the text, God will indulge that mistake. But when I contemplate this church or a denomination or a school I would say we should not exploit the indulgence of God and should do it the way the New Testament did it and taught it. And so the second thing I learned here is that baptism is the signifying of what happens through water baptism. Third and last point. What does it mean? First thing we saw is that it's universal and basic. The second thing we saw is that baptism is immersion. And now the third thing is, what does it mean? And here's my statement of meaning. It signifies our death with Christ which was accomplished historically on Calvary as God looked upon Christ and me in Christ and then was applied to me experientially through faith as I became united with Jesus Christ and then was signified, symbolized in baptism. Now, there are three parts to that. I want to make sure you see the chronology here. This is very crucial. Very controversial and very crucial. Let's make sure we understand it. First comes historical accomplishment of my death with Jesus. When Romans says, I was crucified with Christ, or I died with Christ, or I was grown together with Christ in a death like his, then... We're talking Calvary. And God looks down and sees me in Christ and I die with Christ historically. And that's the accomplishment of my death with Christ. Then, 2,000 years later, in our case, comes the experiential application of that accomplishment through faith. As we're united to Christ in faith, what was accomplished there is applied here. And we say, I am crucified with Christ now. And my own life is experientially bound up in what happened historically there. And then comes signification of what happened in this application. And that's baptism signifying two things. The historical moment. Of my identification with Christ in God's eyes as he died and I died in him and the application of that accomplishment through faith here where I am united with Christ and his death becomes my death experientially. That's what this means, signifying those. Now that's very controversial. And it's controversial probably in more ways than you are aware I'm not even thinking about infant baptism this morning. That's not even in my computer as I preach this text. There are implications for it, but that's not on the screen. What's on the screen is this. Is it true that baptism is a symbol instead of an instrument of my union with Christ? and thus my justification, and my salvation. Symbol or instrument? There is a a huge part of Christendom that would say, no, John Piper, your view is wrong, because the text plainly says Not that baptism signifies our death, but that it effects it, it causes it, it brings it about, and until it does, you are not justified, and you are not saved. And they would point first to verse 3, and their pointings are powerful. Verse 3 says, we have been baptized into his death. And one of the writers that I read in preparing said, it does not say we have believed into his death. It says we've been baptized into his death as the instrument. And then it gets even more powerful in verse 4, where they read like this. We have been buried with him through baptism." into death through instrument not symbol they would say so I read a whole chapter in one of these books that uh, stands on that side and let me give you a quote from one competent representative quote those who say he's talking about me that our union with Christ in his death and thus our own death to sin occurred before baptism are simply not taking the text at its word. And I feel the force of that because it says we have been buried with him through baptism into Death. So why don't I just agree with that? And there are three reasons, and I think I only have time to do uh, two of them. And I see, in fact, I don't have time for two, but we'll do the best we can. First reason for not agreeing that it's the instrument rather than the symbol. If I were to embrace that view... I would have to, I believe, undo almost everything I've taught you in the last two years from Romans 1 to 5. Romans 5.1 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And I could return the same kind of talk and say, it does not say, therefore, having been justified by baptism, we have peace with God. And I could return and say, those who say it's baptism are not owning up to the wording of faith alone in 328 and faith in 5 1. I could do that. I could go to Romans 8-1 and, and read, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I could put 5-1 and 8-1 together and I say, hmm, no condemnation is the same as justified in Christ Jesus, by faith. So we are justified by faith. There's no condemnation in Jesus. In Jesus, there's this union. So how, do, how does faith and union relate? And I would say, the faith by which I'm justified, alone, according to 328, must be the instrument by which I'm united with Christ, because that's the place alone where there is justification and no condemnation. Baptism's not even in the picture yet. I could do that. And that is what I do. And then I could start reading the rest of the New Testament. And here, I've got a footnote 3 with 40 texts in it. About places where faith is made the instrument of salvation with no mention of baptism. And I could use all those to talk the same way he's talking to me. About this text, which doesn't mention faith, it only mentions baptism. And so what we've got to do is try to put all this together. We've got to figure out how does all the Bible teaching about faith as the instrument of union with Christ and the means by which we are justified, and how does baptism relate to that? And that's where I found this book I was reading, Wanting. Now I'm skipping... Argument number two for why I disagree with it, though it's important. And I'm going to conclude with number three, because I think what you need now, what you need, what I needed most yesterday as I wrestled with this again, I needed a way to read these two verses, three and four, and hear them such that they didn't just scream at me, instrument, so that the case is over and baptism effects. Justification and baptism effects salvation and baptism causes union with Christ where all is to be found. I needed needed to hear those words honestly, with no twisting, meaning something else. So I thought and I thought. And what I thought was, you know, we do use symbolic, emblematic language that way. And we expect people not to force our language to be non-emblematic and non-symbolic, even though we may not in the sentence say, now by the way, this is a symbol, and here's the analogy I came up with. Before I give it to you, let's just read read these two verses again. I want you to make your mind up on the basis of what's here in the text. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Now, can that be understood symbolically as opposed to instrumentally? Here's the analogy. All of us who have put on the ring of marriage... I'm going to craft this sentence as close as I can get it to that sentence all of us who have put on the ring of marriage have by putting on this ring forsaken all others to cleave only to our wives and therefore by this ring i am united to my wife noel alone and dead to all others now you could press me if i said that and say ah ah it was the actual putting on of the ring that caused you to forsake all others. It was, the, it was the, the putting on the ring that was the cleaving to Noel. You said so explicitly. There it is in black and white. By this ring, I am united to my wife alone. What could be plainer than that? The ring is all. Now, if you talk that way to me, I would simply feel sorry for you. (laughs) That, That your handling of language is so thin and so monochromatic and lacking in depth and nuance and care and sensitivity to context and symbol and emblem, I would just say, well, some people just don't get it, you know. But I did say it. I did say, by this ring, I forsake all others. But what I meant was, by this ring as a symbol of something. Now what? Ten minutes before I put the ring on, I said, looking into her eyes, I plight thee my troth. Anybody know what that means? In English, I promise you my faithfulness. And at that moment, I forsook all others. And then I put the ring on and I said, by this ring, I forsake all others. But what I meant was, this ring signifies a union that I have embraced here formally. And that's reality. So in the analogy, the vows stand where faith stands and the ring stands where baptism stands. And I think we talk like that. So the question is whether or not Paul could talk like that about baptism. And to answer that question, the text by itself isn't enough unless he clues you in some way. And what he's done is given you about six chapters of clues that faith has such a prominent, decisive, effective role in uniting me to Christ that to say that baptism is the instrument by which I'm united to Jesus, I think is contrary to the wider Pauline and New Testament those are two reasons why I'm not persuaded by that other view. There's another one, but I'm going to close just with an application, very simply, straightforward. Have you taken the vows? Have you put on the ring? Are you in this room right now not embracing Jesus? Jesus. Do you look upon Him as unworthy of your covenant, unworthy of your trust, unworthy of your cleaving to Him alone and forsaking all others? Then please, before you leave, cleave to Jesus. Reach out by faith, embrace Him and say, You're my only hope. I marry you. And then, get baptized. Be immersed in water. We'll fill up this tank every Wednesday night if we have to, to keep that commandment in this church. So, take the vow, put on the rain. Let's pray. Father... It is your word and not my word, ultimately, that settles these issues. I don't want anybody to believe these things because I say them. I pray that you would grant people to be so immersed in the New Testament and the Old that they will be able to assess rightly, sniff out and smell, as it were, the aroma of right thinking, right teaching, right living. So saturate our minds with your word. Grant that anyone in the room now who's not trusting Jesus would be united to Christ by the Holy Spirit through faith even now. And then grant that in not too long a lapse, the emblem, the symbol, the ring would be put on. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand for a closing benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace and give you understanding and give you joy and grant you to live a Roman 6 kind of existence because you understand better what it means that you were baptized. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.